hear these overseers pray. Uh, I wish I could get everybody here to, to see completely their heart for the Lord. It is exciting to me to be able to work with this group of men, and uh, we are privileged. <clears throat> it's not good when I'm losing it before I get started here. I'm just going to tell you that. That's, that's, that's a bad situation, but... Uh, we need to be praying for, for their wisdom and guidance uh, in, this, in this ministry that we have, and we need to be thankful for them. Pastors get way too much credit, i got to tell you that. Uh, the Pastor Appreciation Month and all that, you guys are overly sweet, but I feel appreciated every day that you take the Word of God and, and live by it. But let's make sure that we remember to appreciate those overseers and uh, the divas, our, our ladies that serve here. There's, so much that goes on in the body and pastors get a credit because they stand up in front of people and people look at them. I apologize that you have to look at me, but as we're doing this, we are the church. We are the body together and we need to remember that. Diana? I agree, you're right. We, we should recognize Aaron, but uh, what we don't, just kind of like the pastors and overseers, I stand up here in front of you so, so people think I do more than I do. <laughs> but uh, but uh, Aaron is, is getting the face of that, but that's part of our whole communications team, and, and we've got some folks that are really working hard with that. That includes Debbie and Stacy and Doreen and Amanda. Is that, is that it? That's everybody? Math isn't my strong suit. I had to use all my fingers there. Um, but anyway, uh, thanks for, for pointing that out. Uh, ladies do a fantastic job. And uh, we're, we're still working on getting some men involved there too. But uh, right now, um, just really impressed with that. All right. <clears throat> no more public service announcements. We're going to stop for a second. And we're going to be continuing in our journey through the book of Luke. Um, we're in this Dear Theophilus series. As uh, Dr. Luke has written the story of Jesus uh, in essentially a letter, and we don't call it a letter in the classification in scriptures, we call these first four books of the New Testament Gospels because they tell the good news, the good story of Christ. And as they give this information about who the Messiah is, what he did in his time walking on earth, and what that means to us, then the, the next portion after the Gospels we talk about the epistles, the letters. But Luke is writing this essentially as a letter to a friend. And as he's writing this letter to his friend, he has a purpose in it. So his friend can be certain. Certain of what? Certain of the faith that he's been taught. And more than that, Luke's intent, as with all of these uh, scriptures, is for this to be read among the churches, among the believers. Even us. He didn't know us, but the Lord did. And so God inspired him to write these words with the intent that you and I might be able to be certain about what we've been taught. But it doesn't do any good for you to hear what I think. It doesn't do any good for you to be taught by a human. You need to be taught by the Word of God. So you want to have God's Word in your hand. If you don't have a Bible of your own, or if you don't have your Bible with you today, we've got some here. We want to make sure that you've got one. So just put your hand up, and we'll make sure. Michael will take care of it. Make sure that you're all hooked up. We need a couple right in here. Um, make sure he sees you. Once he sees you, you can put it down. But make sure he sees you so you can get it. Because you, 
you can't go into battle without a sword, right? You've got you to gotta make sure that you've got what you need to be able to learn. And if you just take it for granted, what I'm telling you, then you will never be able to have the strength and depth of faith that will carry you through a difficult life. And if you're alive, it's going to be a difficult life. Get used to it. <clears throat> so today, as, uh, as we are continuing on our journey, we are in Luke chapter 8. It's about four-fifths of the way through your Bible, if you're not super familiar with it. Um, and a Bible, like every other book, has a table of contents in the front, so you can actually find out where to find the book of Luke, where this uh, whole thing starts. So you can go to the front, figure it out, and find your page number. But it's about four-fifths of the way through. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John is the last of the Gospels. And uh, we're going to be in chapter 8, which conveniently comes right after chapter 7. Makes it easier to find that way. Just all long enough for everybody to be able to find it. All right, so we got it. By the way, if you are using an electronic device uh, for your Bible, if you have a, a Bible on your tablet or your phone, uh, our Wi-Fi here, the password and, and everything is in your program. So if you uh, get in your program, you'll be able to see that and, and use the Wi-Fi that's here. We're going to read this story. And in Luke chapter 8, after Luke has established who Jesus is. He spent, spends a great deal of time being very explicit in pointing out that Jesus is 100% fully human and 100% fully God. He is both God and man, not two separate things, not two separate people, not big God and little, not, you know, big Jesus, little Jesus kind of thing. <coughs> that, that, uh, there are a number of heresies about the nature of Christ. But we recognize that Jesus is God in the flesh. And Luke has pointed this out very explicitly in a number of different ways. Jesus himself makes it very clear, even when he says to the Pharisees about the Sabbath, the Son of Man, referring to himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's huge, because the Sabbath was before the law was given. The Sabbath was bigger than Moses, bigger than Abraham. The Sabbath went all the way back. Only God is Lord of the Sabbath, and Jesus said, that's me. It's a huge thing. We've seen him do amazing miracles in casting out demons and, and healing sick people and even raising dead people. We see that Jesus, as God and man, is Lord over both the physical realm and the spiritual realm. And he's done some preaching, and now he's got a following, and Naturally, if you're preaching the truth, you're going to also make some enemies. Truth offends. Now, just a little side note for us as Christians, and I want you to bear this in mind as we get through the rest of the message, because in the rest of the message, we're going to talk about how you might offend people. So, good luck with that. But, uh, but what we don't want to do is to offend people because we are offensive. I see too many people... Claiming to be Christians, often not, but wearing our name. Sometimes we are Christians, but we're careless. Who are just jerks. If you offend people because you're a jerk, then it isn't the truth that is offending. It's you. Stop being a jerk. Jesus is not a jerk, but he does speak the truth. And when he speaks the truth, just like John the Baptist speaking truth to power, you are going to offend people because truth is is at its root, in its very nature, offensive. 
to those who would prefer the lie. Bear that in mind as we go through. So uh, we're going to be reading this story that goes all the way to, to verse 21. We're going to focus in just on the latter portion of that today. If you were with us last week, we learned, uh, we learned that the, this whole thing is one story in reality. Uh, but we focused in on the first 15 verses, and we discovered that when the Word takes root, it produces fruit. Say that with me. When the Word takes root, it produces fruit. That was last week. So Jesus was telling this parable um, about, <coughs> excuse me, about uh, these four different types of soils. And you might remember I singled Caleb out as a farmer to be able to use that as an illustration. I won't do that again, Caleb. I, I promise not to mention you by name in the sermon because I wouldn't want you to make, make you feel uncomfortable by pointing at you or anything like that. So anyway, as we're, uh, as we're looking at this story, there are four different types of soils, all representing different responses of people. Now we can say different types of people, and that's not really what it is. It's not about the nature of the person. It's about the response to the Word of God. So you've got the person that is hard like the path and the seed falls and uh, it, before it can take root, the, the devil snatches it away, and the word of God doesn't get in. And then you have the, the rocky, shallow soil where it gets in, and it takes root quickly, and it grows quickly, but because it's shallow and rocky, there's no moisture in it, we don't get a good root system, and that faith goes away because it isn't real faith. It's just emotion. There's a third kind. And that third kind of soil, <coughs> excuse me, that third kind of soil, we'll read about this in just a moment, is where you have soil that's good, and the word, the seed, is received, and it begins to put down roots, and it begins to grow, but there are also thorns around it, and the thorns choke it out. And that faith is so concerned about the things of this world, good, bad, and everything in between, that it doesn't mature. It doesn't grow. And then lastly, that good soil, well tended, and the root gets down, and it grows, and it's healthy, and it produces a crop a hundred times more than was sown. That's where we want to be. And Jesus continues that story in what we read today. So we're going to start with verse, 20, verse 1 and read through verse 21. After this, Jesus traveled, about, <clears throat> Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna, and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. While a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell on the path. It was trampled on and the birds of the air ate it up. Some fell on rock and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns which grew up with it and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than was sown. When he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let me read that again. When he said this, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, The knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that, quoting Isaiah 6, 9 here, Though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God. Those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rock are the ones who receive the word with joy when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked out by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they don't mature. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. No one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come can see the light. For there's nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. May God bless the reading of his word today. Let's pray together. Father, as we open your word, I pray for myself and for the people gathered here. For myself, Father, I pray that you would strip away any semblance of pride. That you would strip away any, any flesh and things I can do this on my own. That you would speak beyond your servants faltering tongue. <coughs> Father, for the people gathered here today, I pray that you would make us all into good soil. That we would receive your word. That we would hear it and put it into practice. That we might fulfill the purpose for which you have lit our lamps. Lord, take away all of the things that could distract us today. We know that the enemy is even now seeking to deceive, to distract, and to discourage, and we, we don't want to accept any of that. It's not about any of those extraneous thoughts. We want to know you. And we thank you that you have come to us, that you have given us your word, and that you illuminate it to our hearts by your spirit. And Father, we thank you most of all for Jesus who died for us while we were still sinners and enemies and far from you. May that truth govern every part of us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> 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 
Having read this, this passage, we see that there's a continuation of thought. Jesus tells the parable, and he goes directly from that parable right into this other parable or other metaphor of a lamp. So he tells everybody, here's, here's the deal. If you're going to be good soil and you're going to have the seed take root in you, you're going to produce fruit. There's no other option. Of the four soil types, uh, I, my understanding of this is that two of them are non-believers. You hear the word, you don't receive it at all. You hear the word, you think it's cool, you get caught up in the emotion of it, but it doesn't take any root in you, and that's why we fall away. The reason I believe that that second portion is also a person that's not saved is the words of John, saying if they have gone from us, it's because they didn't belong to us in the first place. The third, I think, is very typical of a lot of us. We get it. We just don't get it enough to really get it. So we get caught up in our repentance on Sunday or on communion Sunday, like today is, and we get really, really focused in that moment. And then we walk away from that moment, we, we pan out, so to speak, and we see all of the rest of the stuff of life. I've got so much to do at work. It's so important for me to, to, to get these things done that I, I can't spend time in God's Word today. I can't spend time in prayer. I can pray as I'm driving. I can pray as I'm doing my stuff. But I can't spend focused time with God. I'm so busy. I've got so many things going on. I've got so many stresses. I've got so many pursuits that I, you know, I can't go be a part of that Bible study. I can't go meet her for coffee. I can't go talk to him about what's going on in life because I've got so many other things. And we don't grow. Increasingly, we see that our world around us is encroaching even on Sundays. It used to be that in a community like this, just simply culturally by the influence of the church over generations, some of you are old enough here to remember when the stores were closed, right? On Sunday you didn't go to the grocery store or the drugstore. They didn't open. It wasn't an option for you. And you know what? Nobody died because of it. What you did was you planned better. Now, not everybody went to church on Sunday. But the world around us has encroached more and more and more. We even have school events on Sundays now. Things are happening all the time that are competing for our affection and our attention. Trying to get us to focus in on these important, shiny things. I've talked to people who don't go to church because... Somebody who voted for that person goes to that church. I don't care who that person is. It's irrelevant. If you're letting politics keep you from relationship and fellowship with people who share eternity with you, then something is wrong in our hearts and in our lives. It doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on. What matters is, do you belong to Christ? And if you belong to Christ, then we need to come together in that. I'm not suggesting that you should all vote the same way. I'm not suggesting you should all think the same way. How boring would life be if that happened? Some of you probably can even be Packers and Lions fans and still be saved. Really? And yet, in this diversity, 
and in all of the things that we do, all of the sports and all of the fun things and all the hard things, we allow these things to crowd out the growth, the maturity that God's called us to. It's more than calling. We're going to see this, I hope, as we go through today. When we focus on growth as a sense of duty, as, a, as just a calling, we're commanded to do these things, so therefore we do them, then I think we're missing a very important component. Then things become much more like what we know as religion. A man-made set of rules, or even a God-written set of rules that we have commandeered, and we make it all about doing and performing so that we can impress God or so we can keep God from being angry with us. And yet, the picture that we have, even in the Old Testament, don't be confused, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Even in the Old Testament, what we have is a picture of God as Father wanting to have a relationship with us. And we as rebellious rebellious children who have turned our back on him. We see God as husband and we as bride, and yet we are, we are portrayed, because it's who we are, as an adulterous bride. The unfaithful bride, that's us. Over and over and over we see this in Scripture. And God reaches down and he loves us. And he comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. While we were yet sinners, according to Romans 5.8. Now you and I aren't going to lay down our lives very often for anybody. But we might in a sense of noble duty. Many of you in here are veterans and, and you signed up for that. You're going to lay your life down for the cause if necessary. You would lay your life down for your brothers and your sisters. You would lay your life down to protect the innocents. Uh, we've got at least one cop in here. That's what you do every day. We've got firefighters in here. That's what you do. You volunteer to lay your life down for good people. We can get that. Jesus didn't lay his life down for good people. He laid his life down for dirtbags like me. And until we get that, we miss the gospel entirely. Why am I spending time on this? Because this is exactly the point. When we get to the end of this, what I hope and pray you will come away with is a new mind, a new set of affections, so that when we get done and we see where Jesus is, why he says what he says, it will click for us that if we really get it, there is no other option. I can't be halfway in. I'm either all in or I'm all out. Because if I'm somewhere in the, in the middle there, in the book of Revelation, God says, I'm going to spit you out. You've got to be in. Let's start with the core reality. This is our, our focal point through all of this. Those who grasp the gravity of grace are moved by the magnitude of the mission. Hopefully the alliteration will help you remember it and not make it trite, because I don't ever want to do that. It's not a game, it's not a joke. Those who grasp the gravity of grace are moved by the magnitude of the mission. Say it with me. Those who grasp the gravity of grace 
are moved by the magnitude of the mission. When we get it, when we really understand the weight, the heaviness, the importance, the centrality of the fact that God is holy and I am not, and my sin separates me from him, and the only thing that I deserve is death and hell. Now, some of you are thinking, wow, that's really harsh. Dude, that's it. That's the message. That's the gospel. Well, it's not the gospel yet. That's the law. The law is sin brings death, period. Every person, every sin, always. Nobody escapes it. Just like nobody gets off this planet alive, nobody, nobody here is clean until God cleans you. But because of the fact that I can't, God, in his love and mercy, does. We all know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. See, when I do it from memory, it comes out to King James. <laughs> but the reality of it is, that is such a huge thing. It's bigger than bracelets and bumper stickers. It's bigger than t-shirts and happy ditties. This is, this is everything. You and I deserve death. If we don't get that, then we have not seen him yet. Every time someone encounters God as he is in Scripture, every time, they either die or think they're going to or wish that they had. Isaiah in chapter 6, gets a vision of God. And as he gets this vision, he says, Woe to me! I'm ruined! I'm a sinner! And I've seen God. That's the reaction that is natural. You don't have to work that up. You don't have to have religion to push you toward that. You don't have to have a sense of duty that moves you in that direction. You just have to see him. And when you see him, you, when you really see him as he is, you will begin to know, I don't belong here. He's holy, and I'm anything but. And if you come to church on Sunday morning, maybe today, and your heart is heavy, and you feel totally unworthy, and you know that if anybody knew what was really in your heart, if they knew who you really were, you'd be soaking in your own shame, and you couldn't look them in the eye. If you feel like that, and you are hoping for some inspiration, good. We're ready to start. But until we're face down, then we don't know him yet. Jesus, as he gives this parable, is drawing a very clear line between those who get it and those who don't. Those who get it are consumed by it. And they produce fruit. Those who grasp the gravity of grace are moved by the magnitude of the mission. Every single person who's been born of God through Jesus Christ was chosen to carry out a mission. The mission is for the secret things of God that have been revealed to us to be revealed to the world through us. In other words, I'm just a beggar. We're all beggars. But as a beggar, once I've found bread, I know where the source of unlimited bread is, in this case, the bread of life, then I have a responsibility 
an inherent responsibility that nobody should have to tell me I should already know this to tell others. All the bread you could ever eat, and I'm a starving beggar, and I know you're a starving beggar, what kind of a person sits on that information? It's not even going to take anything from me. I'm still going to get all I want, but I don't share it with you. What kind of special hate do you have to have? Let's work through four things. Observation, explanation, exhortation, admonition. All right, so the observation. This is the truth that Jesus is observing. As he's giving this story, he just makes an observation about how life actually works. It's a propositional truth set in this observation. And what he's saying is in verse, <coughs> excuse me, in verse 16, no one lights a lamp and hides it in a jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, he puts it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. Now, we're not talking about lamps like you might have in your house. It's an oil lamp. Picture a candle or, or an oil lamp, maybe a genie lamp. You rub it and nothing happens. Nothing happens. I might as well use it to light the house up. So you light the lamp, but you don't light the lamp just so that you can hide the lamp. That would be foolish. So you fill it with oil, you light it, and you put it, they would put it on a stand because when you elevate the light, you're going to get better effect from it. So they would light it. You're not going to stick it under the bed. You're not going to put a jar over it so that you cover it up. There's a reason that you lit it. Here it is. The purpose of the light is to illuminate. The purpose of the light is to illuminate. That's the observation Jesus is making here. It's pretty obvious, right? You look at that, and, and if you're really tracking with them, if you're paying attention, then there's a part of you that's saying, well, duh. I think that's the response that his followers are having. Well, of course. And that's the response that Jesus wants. He wants this to be a, well, duh, kind of moment. <laughs> so that you can transition to the point. The purpose of the light is to illuminate. When I got up this morning and I'm getting ready and Shelly's still in bed and I had some things I was trying to, to look at, uh, just last minute study things, I go into the living room and it's dark. So what did I do? I turned on the light. But I didn't turn on the light and then throw a towel over it. I turned on the light because I wanted to see. That was the purpose. We also must recognize that there is a purpose in our lives. Jesus gives an explanation of it. The observation is that the purpose of the light is to illuminate. Then he gives the rationale, the explanation. Why? Why am I saying this? What's the point? Those who have the gospel must share the gospel. Those who have the gospel must share the gospel. So once I know him, once my eyes have been opened, the mystery has been revealed to me, it's my responsibility to share it with others. Well... Why are you saying that? What, what's his point here? Again, remember this is one story we're looking at. Let's read 16 into 17. No one lights a lamp and hides it. Jar, bed, any of that. He puts it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there's nothing hidden that will not be disclosed. There's nothing hidden that will not be disclosed. You may have revealed in your translation and your rendering. And nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Into the light. Seems like a weird statement, doesn't it? But now, normally when we see this in, in the New Testament, it's talking about hidden sins. Those secrets. The, 
you know, the things my mom used to drill into my head, be sure your sins will find you out. It's true. Yes, it is. And she made sure of that. But that's not what he's talking about here. Jesus uses the same phrase in other places in that context. But here, and in the parallel passage in Mark 4, we see him using this differently. This relates back to what he said about the parable. In fact, go back to verse 9. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God have been given to you. But to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. Then he explains the, the, the parable. Now that passage in Isaiah is actually a condemnation of Israel. You've been given the word. You've rejected the word. You've heard it. You haven't lived it. Therefore I'm removing it. And it will come to you, but it will come veiled. And those who have ears to hear, let them hear. That's why Jesus likes that phrase so much. If you want to be that good soil, here's the thing. If you want to be good soil, you can. Jesus said, anyone who comes to me, I will no way cast out. Nobody gets turned away when you come to Jesus. But you only come to Jesus when the Spirit moves you, when you get snatched, when the Father draws you. So if you want it, that means you've been called to him. Your eyes have been opened enough to see that there's more to see. What a beautiful reality. So if you're sitting here right now and you think, man, I, I want more in my life. My life has not been what it should be. I've talked the talk perhaps, but I haven't walked the walk. You can, because it isn't you anyway. Notice the lamp doesn't light itself. The one who lit you has a purpose for you. And every single Christ follower has that purpose to glorify God and to take the mysteries of God, the things that have been hidden throughout generations until Jesus came, that have now been revealed to those who have received him, to those who are his children. Oh man, that's a whole other sermon. Oh. Give me four more hours and we'll get through. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. We'll have to come back. But those who are his children are not like the servants. The servants do the job because they have to. They don't know what the job is. But the children are let in. They're the inner circle. They get it. Jesus says to his disciples, the secrets of the kingdom have been given to you. It, I'm going to explain it to you. You get it. Your eyes have been opened. But the rest of the world... They're only going to get it through you. Do you realize that every person in the world needs Jesus Christ? Every person. That's only one amen. Every person in the world needs Jesus Christ. Every person. That's why we have these missionaries. That's why we give money to support them. Because somebody's got to tell them. And if you and I can't go there to do it, then we've got to help them out. But you and I have a mission field right here in our own families, right here in our own community, at your workplace. Everywhere you go, you have the ability to shine your light, to let the light of Christ illuminate the mystery so that they can see in us who he really is. Some people are going to hate you for it. Some people will live because of it we got to make a choice. 
Are we going to do what we were meant to do? Or are we going to make excuses? His observation is that the purpose of the light is to illuminate. The explanation of why he's saying that is for all of us, his followers, whether you're a minister of the gospel vocationally or you are a gospel carrier. That's all of us. All of us who have the gospel must share the gospel. And he gives an exhortation. What's an exhortation? It's kind of an encouragement, a challenge. He's saying, okay, do this. And it's very short here. The exhortation is not to carry the light. That's expected. Good seed, good soil, good fruit. That's how it works. So you're either in or you're not. And if you're taking hold of God's word, and you're keeping that soil fertile and wet, it's going to go. The water of the Spirit of God and the fertilizer. You know what fertilizer is, right? So when that stuff hits your life, or the fan, whichever you want to say, stop stressing about it. That's the fertilizer that keeps you fertile and ready to take that seed. Be happy for the fertilizer in your life. The exhortation is this. God takes this charge seriously. So must we. God takes this charge seriously. So must we. It's a very short exhortation in verse 18. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. That's it. He doesn't say, listen, to go out there and shine your light. No. You're already lit. You're already a light. If you are a light, you shine. That's what light does. If not, you're not really a light, are you? Your lamp is out. But if God has lit your lamp, He doesn't have to command you to share the light. That's what you do. What He commands us here. Just get your ears open. Take this seriously. Stop going to church and leaving unchanged. Stop reading your Bible. Ooh, yeah, that was good. Okay, so mark that off my to-do list. That's not how to read your Bible. This is life. When the disciples were at a, a crucial point and Jesus shared some hard truth with them, and everybody falls away. He turns to the twelve and he says, are, are, are you going to leave too? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? You have the words of life. Nobody else does that. Start to read your Bible like that. Like this is bread and water. Like this is blood in your veins. Like this is oxygen. And I can't live without it. When you start to read your Bible that way, man, stuff's going to get set on fire. I'm going to hit pause here for a moment, take a little Reformation time since we're just coming after Reformation Day. We're in this, this time when we think a lot about Luther and the other reformers and what changed the world was when Luther got serious about the Word of God. He had been a priest. He'd been a priest for a long time. He was a professor. He's teaching the Bible to people and he wasn't even saved yet. When he read the book of Galatians, he's like, whoa, I've totally missed this. And then it took him to Romans. He's like, whoa, what happened here? And his brain exploded. And all of a sudden, Luther is on fire. And the word of God wasn't something he taught as a vocation. It's something that meant life to him. It was everything. 
And then he started to look at life. He said, wait a minute, there's a lot of corruption here. This isn't right. Whoa, 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 everything I've learned in church here, there, there's, there's messed up stuff. We've got we to gotta fix this, guys. And he invited a conversation. It didn't go that well, but they had a conversation. And he wound up getting booted out of the church that he committed his life to. Threatened attempts on his life. But once he got it, nothing else mattered. And the world caught on fire because one man, not only one man, but for the purposes of this, I'm going to say one man caught fire for the gospel. And then another and another and another. And pretty soon all of Western Europe is on fire for the gospel. And a lot of bad things happen too. Because when a revolutionary moment comes, not everybody has true motives. But man, we here are the benefit. We, we get to benefit from all of that so that you and I can have a hundred different Bibles on our phones and Bibles sitting on shelves at home collecting dust so we can go to church and go through the motions again and again and again. It's not religion. It's a realization of what reality actually is. Those who grasp the gravity of grace are moved by the magnitude of the mission. We talked about the observation, the explanation. The exhortation is God takes this charge seriously, so must we. The admonition, the warning that he gives at the end is not to be missed. He's given this challenge, this exhortation, but at the end he wraps it up with a warning. Therefore, consider carefully how you listen. Check this out now. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, will be taken from him. In Mark it says, even what he has will be taken from him. He uses the same thing uh, in, in Matthew in talking about the parable of the talents. Some of, are, some of us are familiar with that. Or in the new, uh, newer rendering in the NIV, it's the parable of the bags of gold. Lame. Just, yeah, I mean, just lame. You're, I love the NIV. That's not a great, great rendition. It's true. It's just not cool. So anyway, as we are looking at this, the, the phrasing here, he who has will be given more, he who does not is going to lose even what he thinks he has. Basically what he's saying here is that if you, if you don't get after it, you don't get it. If you don't get after it, you don't get it. His concept here is use it or lose it. Now if you don't get after it, if you're not out doing the mission, there are two different uh, meanings here uh, that you don't get it. You don't understand. You don't grasp the gravity of grace if it's not moving you to get out of your chair, to get off the sofa, to turn off the TV and start loving people. Loving people not just to be kind. There are all kinds of folks who are kind. Ellen is kind. The question is, are you going to love people in the name of Jesus Christ? Are you going to shine your light? That's a different thing. And if you're not doing that, you don't get it. But beyond that, there's a second aspect of this. If I'm not getting after it, I don't get to keep it. I'm not talking about your salvation, but I am talking about your peace, your assurance, your gifts. 
Gifts are tools. God gives us gifts for use in the building up of others, for use in the building of his kingdom, his church. And if I give you a tool, if I give my, my uh, son a tool, and I say, Gabriel, here's a, here's a rake, I need you to go rake the yard, and he's not going to stand there leaning on the rake, you'd never do that to me, would you? And then Kayla comes up and says, hey, I want to help, I want to work, but I don't have a rake. I'm going to take the rake from Gabriel and give it to Kayla. Quit leaning and get to work. God does the same thing with our gifts. If you're not utilizing your gift, if God has made you to be able to do certain things for the kingdom, when you're too busy sitting on your hands or taking care of your own business or worrying about what others are going to think of you or trying to pad your resume or build your nest egg, why is God going to leave the tools there for you? He's not going to take you out of his family. But he is going to take away some of your privileges. When I have children in my family who don't do chores, they don't stop being my children, but I might not let them go to the movies on Friday night. I might not have so much fun with them that we might have if they did what they were supposed to do. Why don't I have more peace in my life? Because you're not working. Why don't I have more assurance in my life? Because you're so busy looking for peace and assurance that you stop doing the things that lead to peace and assurance. That's, that's how it works. And I'm telling you, these are the conversations I have every day. And as I look around here, there are several of you. I can look into your eyes. We've had these conversations directly. This is it, guys. Why, why am I struggling in my faith? Why can't I get over Stop thinking about that stuff that's getting in your way. And stop worrying about having your best life now. Start focusing on the gravity of the in incredible thought that the holy God loves you. The God of all creation that you have rejected and rebelled against. Oh, I haven't done that. Yes, you have. We all have. By our choice and our nature, we are separated from God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not just that guy in the pew over there. We don't have pews, do we? I can't really say that anymore. Maybe we need to get some pews. Not that person. Not your spouse. Not your parent or your boss or your coach or your teacher. i got to start looking here. Not what can I get out of it, but why? Why would he do this? I can't be saved. <coughs> but if I see him, how can I not? How can I not be saved? He is that great and beautiful. If you don't get after it, you don't get it. Use it or lose it. We often act like the, the gifts are ours, like we own them. They are on loan from the master. Our job is to put them to work. That's his warning. Do you want to be happy for the rest of your life? <laughs> then don't get caught up in the things of this life. Don't get caught up with the worries and the riches and the pleasures. Don't get caught up about what you have to do. Don't get caught up 
thinking that all these things that scream at you that they're important are actually important. There is a still small voice calling to you. It's the Lord saying, listen, I'm not going to jump up and down and shout. I'm not going to fill your schedule with all kinds of things to push everything away. You are going to get to choose your priorities. Will you choose me? Why does it matter? Well, I think we just talked about it. God takes it seriously. It matters because it matters to God. Because this is reality. The longer we labor in religion, the longer we miss out on the glory of relationship. I'm not saying that all of the things that, that we do in church aren't valuable. That all the historic traditions of the church don't have a place and a value. They do. And I think we've done ourselves a disservice in our day and age by running away from so much of that. Even here at Real Life, I mean, we have made things really casual. And that's great. Because God doesn't look at you differently when you dress up. But you know what I've noticed about life? I look at myself differently when I dress up. I feel different if I have a shirt and tie on than I do if I'm in sweatpants and a t-shirt. It changes me. It doesn't change anything else about reality. We've done that to ourselves by trying to make this so comfortable. We're not changing, by the way. We're going to continue to be this. Because this is the right thing in the world that we're in. But are we really getting it? When we come to church, is it just one more thing on our agenda? Or are we getting together with the people of God to encounter the God of the universe in person? Think that might change how you handle the rest of your morning? If that's what you're doing when you come on Sunday morning, do you think that might change how you talk to one another in the car? Not that that happened this morning to anybody, I'm sure. Do you think it might change your view of Saturday night? Because we rush kids home all the time for school nights, right? Because that's so important. We've got to get up and get ready. It's a school night. But we stay out late on Saturday night because, oh, it's just church. I just got to show up at church. It's 10 04, you know, they're probably going to be late anyway, so. If we are getting together with the people of God, the family of God, the people that are really our blood, joined in the blood of Christ, to come together to look God in the eye as his children, to encounter the living one. Might that not change our approach? What difference does it make in my daily walk when I get these things? Beyond Sunday morning, Saturday night. If I recognize in my life that God has lit me as a lamp with a purpose of illuminating, that my mission until he takes me home is to be a portrait, a revelation of himself to those around me. You think that might 
change how you approach your boss at work or how you approach the job itself. We get this mentality sometimes that, you know, we're just rearranging chairs on the deck of the Titanic. We're just going through, you know, anybody seen the movie Groundhog Day? Ever feel like that? It's just another day. <coughs> again, same thing over again. What breaks that cycle? Getting in touch with the reality that the God of the universe has reached through time to grab you out of all the human race and say, this one, it's your time. I'm going to set you on a stand. You are lit to illuminate others. And when you get it, and you realize my entire reason for being here is so that those people out there don't die and spend eternity away from Christ. Do you think that changes how you get up in the morning? I gotta go to work again. Those people are such a pain. Or I get to go to work because those people need Jesus and they're going to see a smile on my face and excellent diligence in my hands so that when I get my hand to the plow, they're going to recognize that there is a God in this place and I'm going to represent him well. It changes you so that I get up in the morning with a purpose and I go to bed at night spent and exhausted but energized. Not because I just spent a day working, but because I spent a day illuminating Nothing else matters. What's it look like when I take this seriously? It looks like Jesus. It changes my values. The things I care about, the things that I cherish, the things that I prioritize. How do I know what my priorities are? These are the things you're committed to. Where do you spend your money? Where do you spend your time? What are the things that you will cancel or won't cancel? Well, you know, I can't go to church because I got this. Well, that tells you, in that moment, this is more important than going to church. I'm not condemning anybody. That's just a fact. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, your boss doesn't give you a choice, whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm just telling you that's what it means. So, do with that what you will. But where do I spend my money? Am I spending my money on my cable television? We don't quit unless it's cable. So... But as we're going through life, where I spend my money shows what I value. It shows where my, where my treasure is. My treasure is where my heart is. Where do I spend my time? I spend an awful lot of time at work. An awful lot of time at school. Not enough time, but still an awful lot of time sleeping. How much do I spend investing in the lives of other people? How much time, and I don't mean so that they can, you know, we've got a lot of teachers in here. I don't mean so they can learn math. Hey, that's great. But so that they can learn math in the name of Jesus Christ. So that they can be served in a, in a hospital to take care of their physical needs in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, not always are we going to be using those words, but sometimes we get those opportunities. Always we can be aligned. It changes my values, my priorities, what matters most to me. It changes my time. It changes the lens through which I see the world. When I view the news, do I see the news through my human understanding or through the lens of Scripture? Do I see it through what my political party tells me 
Because if you're totally aligned with either big political party, you're wrong. I don't care who you are. If you're totally aligned with democratic thinking, you're wrong. If you're totally in line with Republican thinking, you're wrong. Get on board with biblical thinking. And you'll see that both have gaps. And they both have virtues. We can't define ourselves that way. When I really get it, <clears throat> I start to look like Jesus. And these things are changed. It, it also changes my stresses, my fears, my anger. Don't raise your hand right now, but how many of you really wrestle with anger? Especially anger toward people who just get on your nerves. Sometimes it's little, sometimes it's big. Sometimes you've really been wronged, and you have an absolute reason for anger from a human perspective. But when my mind is on my mission, then all of that stuff starts to change. The things that bother me change. I become less bothered by what other people do and more bothered by my own sin. And I stop spending my time judging other people and their failings and I start looking at myself saying, Lord, I got so far to go. And when I look at those people that made me mad, those people that can't get past their sin, I'm not looking at them anymore as, what's wrong with you? But, hey, What's wrong with you? How can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I show you love? It changes. Notice what Jesus says, verse 19 and following. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him. So he's got this crowd. of He's out here teaching. Big crowd gathered around. There's so much of a crowd that they came to see him. It's interesting. Everybody else came to hear what he was preaching. They know him, their family. They probably could have gotten there earlier. They know what's going on. But they come afterwards. The crowd's already there. They just want to see him, want to connect with him. But they couldn't get to him because of the crowd. Verse 20. Someone told Jesus about it. Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. He replied, my mother... And brothers are those who hear God's word and put it into practice. This is a continuation of the same thought. It's not that Jesus didn't love his mother and brothers. In his dying moments, he's thinking of his mother's welfare. So don't tell me for a minute that Jesus didn't love his mother. That's not the point. He loved his brothers, and eventually, after he died and was raised from the dead... His brothers, I don't know how many he had, but at least two of them become writers of Scripture when they embrace him as Messiah. His point is this. I have a deeper, more abiding affection. This is great. I love them with a family affection. That's, that's super. They're always going to be my mother and brothers. But that's going to fade. When we die, these bodies that connect us because of our DNA, I don't have that body anymore. Jesus kept his. He was taken up into heaven. But that all goes away. What connects us is the reality of the gospel and the mission. And he, Jesus is saying, look, if you're on my team, let's go. It reminds me of football. Because what doesn't remind me of football, if we're honest, right? So, you know, you think of Tom Brady screaming at his lineman. 
Tom Brady, they were asking uh, Tom Brady about various relationships, his relationship with Bill Belichick, the coach, and his relationship with this lineman or this other, whether, he, whether they get along. And basically what Brady says is, who cares? We have a job to do. Our job is to win. And if you want to win, great. Then we're tight. Because what matters is that thing that joins us. If you're concerned about those other things, then you're not focused on the mission. You're not focused on whether we're here to win. If you're worried about how you get along with that person sitting in on the other end of your row, <laughs> you're missing it. Because this isn't about your personality. The mission matters most. When I grasp the gravity of grace, when I truly get what God has done for me in Christ, it changes what bothers me. It changes how deeply it bothers me. It changes what I value. It changes who I value and why I value them. And I begin to see myself, my circumstances, and others differently. Today, may we each grasp the gravity of His grace and be therefore so moved by the mission that nothing else matters to us. Let's pray together as we close this part. Father in heaven, I thank you. <laughs> how, can I, how can I use words like I thank you? It seems so small and so trite compared to what you've given us. <coughs> I thank you for your word and the privilege of being able to stand before your people and open it with them. And Father, I do pray so earnestly that you would speak beyond my ability to speak. That your spirit would make clear to us what you have. What you have for us to grasp. Lord, I pray that right now, in this very moment, that we would so connect with the truth of your word that we could not leave unchanged. That the things that bothered us at the beginning of this service might not bother us, at least not at the same level now. Lord, may the things that enticed us, Sunday football, all of these things that are so little, may they mean nothing compared to the glory of just knowing you. That we might say with Paul, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I don't even know whether I should live or die because to die means I get to be with him. But to live here means I get to do more fruitful labor for you. Father, change our hearts that we might grasp the gravity of your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. On the first